Hi, this is Jared Blumenfeld. Welcome to Podship Earth. The first 700 miles of my hike from Mexico to Canada was through some of the most arid lands in the U.S. It beat the crap out of me. There was one stretch in the Mojave Desert where there was a 43-mile gap between water sources. I began obsessing about water during the day and waking up at night parched. Up until that point, I'd only understood the preciousness of water from an abstract level. During that first month in the desert, I learned what it feels like to be with much, much less water, and it's painful. From dizziness to exhaustion, being dehydrated felt like life was being drained from me. Local volunteers put out caches of water along the trail, and they literally saved my life. A huge thank you to everyone that fills up those 10-liter bottles to help hikers survive. Sometimes, though, those relief stations were empty, so I realized nothing beats being prepared. This week, we traveled to South Africa to look behind the headlines in Cape Town, where the government has announced a day zero when this modern city is expected to completely run out of water. Cousin David and I then talk with Lisa Gauthier about how what is growing on the top of our heads may be more important for solving environmental problems than what's in our heads. Let's start with talking with Dr. Musa Mahranga, who I've known since 1992, when we were seeing what countries at the UN were doing to follow up on their Rio Earth Summit commitments. <laughs> so Musa and I first got to hang out together in the Security Council of the United Nations. We were just, I don't know how we got these badges, but we got these NGO badges that yeah, back they, in the day, remember? Yeah, like, there's was just... just what a time. Amazing time. So you get this badge to be an NGO. And within a day, Musa and I realized that this actually gave us all UN access. <laughs> all access. You remember the day we met Kofi Annan before he became Secretary General, like in the UN cafeteria? Canteen. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. We were like sitting there talking to him. Like, we didn't even know he was going to become Secretary General. We didn't know anything. We didn't know. We were like, so wet behind the ears. So Musa, he has had an incredible career. He became a PhD. He is, you know, now running his own lab, the Musa Mahranga Memorial. I mean, you're still alive, but you're treated like, you know, someone who died a hundred years ago because he's got labs named after him in Cape Town. Every every PI principal investigator has is named after their labs. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's nothing nothing new. But anyway. I mean, we, we, our family takes special credit in all Moose's work. You know, my kids, Marcus tells people that he met someone that cured cancer. That yeah, person. I haven't done that yet. Yeah, but not, Moose, not Moose is it. closer than any other friend we have to, <laughs> to, to, to doing that. <laughs> well, we're, that's all your friends. If they're as close as I am, then none of us are close. But So Musa is in town because, you know, every time we go on to Facebook, I wonder what the fuck I'm doing. But now I realize what we're doing is we're giving money to Mark Zuckerberg. He then gives it to his wife, whose name is Chan. And Priscilla Chan. Priscilla Chan, right? And together, they give money to Musa and other people. But Musa's in town because he just got some prestigious Chan Zuckerberg cash upfront donation. I'm working with um, several other scientists on a project called the Human Cell Atlas, 
And here we're mapping the over 40 trillion cells in the human body and trying to identify uh, at the molecular level the levels of gene expression in each of these cells. I think it, it will revolutionize medicine. Cool. I mean, it sounds unbelievable. I've never heard of the human cell atlas before. So you live in Cape Town, South Africa. I do. What's it like living there these days? I think one of the most beautiful cities in the world, the natural beauty is spectacular. It's um, got a huge mountain called Table Mountain in the middle of the city. And then in the middle of Table Bay is, a, um, is an island, a very famous island called Robben Island. And that's where uh, Nelson Mandela was uh, held as a prisoner for um, over 20 years. And what's the politics like? It's gone a long way since Mandela took over the ANC and brought South Africa out of apartheid. South Africa is a very vibrant democracy and it's a very free and open press. And there's been a lot of exposure of sort of the ills of corruption and political wrongdoing. And I think the country's coming along bravely in trying to, to solve these problems. And I think what a big step was taken in that direction with the new leadership in, uh, in the ANC. Cape Town has a massive water crisis. In fact, the water crisis is so bad that there is a, a day zero where the city is going to run out of water. Wow. And that day is in, I think it's in sometime in May of this year. So, so in May 2018, yeah. Cape Town is projected to completely run out of water. Completely. Wow. Major city. Um, and, I, and I think running out of water in a, in a major city is, um, is like famine. It's a political thing. So what is, what is South Africa or Cape Town doing to meet that challenge? Do you Look, have uh, desalination plants, we have very strict water regulations. But the foresight in doing some of these things was not adequate. So if you ask me, much more could have been done. So what will happen, Musa, on, in May this year? The city is trying to drill into aquifers under Table Mountain. They're trying to deploy desalination plants. They're trying to do all kinds of things, ration water. But, you know, I don't want to sound like a, you know, doomsday caller, but there is a very, very likely, high likelihood that the city is going to run out of water. Right now is your summer. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, no, no, there's no rain. There's no rain in Cape Town in summer. Whereas in, in, in the northern part of South Africa, it rains in summer. Yeah. So this is really serious. It's and and, serious, and just to yeah. let you know, I mean it the the It's idiot, like California but worse. Much worse. Yeah. Because we had a we had a a drought that went on for five, six years and there were serious ramifications, but there wasn't we never got to a place where anyone was even contemplating, let alone mentioning something like a day zero. I mean, these are these are kind of post Armageddon stories that I didn't think we'd hear about for years. Yeah, Rick has set up a five liter bottle of water onto my shower. So, I mean, being a chemist, maybe you could just get hydrogen and oxygen and mix them. You could like create a bar just from scratch, have bring those yeah. in, have pure water. You, you know what happens? Like hydrogen is a gas, right? Yeah. Yeah. But isn't H2O water? That's yeah. what it's Hydrogen, oxygen is a gas. Yeah. Just bang them together, right? Exactly. Just mix them. Thanks, Jared. Mm -hmm.
We're very lucky to have Dana Smirin, our very own Podship Earth correspondent, on the ground in Cape Town today. Hi, Dana. Hello, Jared. Dana, we were just talking to Musa in the studio about day zero. What's it like right now in Cape Town? The water crisis is very real, and the bounds of the city of Cape Town are surrounded by all sorts of agricultural areas. Just this week, the city has pushed back the ground zero date, saying that we're doing incredible conservation around 60% reduction from 2017. However, this still looks dire. We don't trust the date truly is pushed back because it has been getting moved around back and forth so much. People are concerned farms are not producing, jobs are being lost, multiple municipalities are having the water randomly turned off. I've just spent the day speaking to farmers working the land on a biodynamic farm 20 minutes from Cape Town. My name is Akon. I'm living in Kes River. And tell me, what is happening with water in Kes River? Yes, uh, it's, a, it's a problem about the water because other days is no water, other days it's a water. And what are you doing at home to save water? Yes, uh, <clears throat> to save water on my side, I just make sure that if uh, I wash dishes, I just keep that water and I'll put it in a toilet to flush. Yes. Excellent. Also, uh, the farms are struggling about the water, and we also are scared about the, our jobs. What do you think can happen to your jobs because of the drought? It's because uh, if it's no rain, and the farmers, maybe the, the trees are getting dry, so the farmers can produce the fruit. So you t- you worried about job security? Yes, because without water, we can't survive. What do people say? Are they worried? That, one, that answer is answered for even, even the president is worried also. If the president of the nation is worried about water, which means everybody is suffering, if you end up here, the government said, oh, there's water crisis, there is a problem before the president said so, which means in the locations, if you go there, there's no water. But I don't blame the government. I don't blame anyone. It happens in life. It's natural. But we are there to control ourselves. Do you think climate change? Yes, it's about climate change. Okay. And we have to cope up with the situation which is there. This is Dana Smirin with Podship Earth signing off from Cape Town, South Africa. Thanks, Dana. We look forward to hearing from you again soon. Take care of yourself. Although Cape Town is likely to be the first major modern city to face the threat of running out of drinking water, it's just one extreme example of water scarcity. Thanks to a combination of climate change, aging infrastructure, and population growth, global demand for fresh water is predicted to exceed supply by 40% in 2030. Unfortunately, there are many other cities that are nearing their own day zeros for water. Sao Paulo went through a similar ordeal to Cape Town in 2015 when the main reservoir fell below 4% of capacity. At the height of the crisis, the city of 21 million people had less than 20 days of water supply, and the police had to escort water trucks to stop looting. The city of Beijing is facing water shortages, and as a whole, China is home to almost 20% of the world's population, but has only 7% of the world's fresh water. 
In Cairo, the Nile, which represents 97% of the city's water supply, is nearly unusable because of untreated agricultural and residential pollution. In Jakarta, Indonesia, aquifers are not being replenished despite heavy rain because the city is blanketed in concrete and asphalt which can't absorb the rainfall. In Mexico City, more than 40% of their city's water gets lost from leaking pipes. And in London, yeah, I couldn't believe it was on the list because it rains so frigging much, but London draws 80% of its water from rivers, including the Thames, and it's likely to have supply problems by 2025 and serious shortages by 2040. And finally, in Miami, an early project to drain swamps nearby had an unforeseen result. Water from the Atlantic Ocean contaminated the Biscayne Aquifer. In Hallandale Beach, where my grandmother Bert used to live, they recently had to close six of its eight wells due to saltwater intrusion. At the end of the show, I'll talk about what you can do to tackle the water scarcity at home right now. An important Podship Earth theme is understanding our relationship with nature and taking small steps in our everyday lives to help the planet. One of the largest contributors to our climate crisis, and one that's often overlooked, is our global food system. If we're going to get the planet back on track, one of the best things we can do is be more mindful about the food we eat. The main reason I chose not to eat meat or dairy is because I feel so much better. And it looks like I'm not alone. Veganism in the U.S. has risen 600% in the past three years. And if you don't believe me, listen to Just Jen Jen from YouTube. I'm here to tell you the biggest trend to follow in 2018 is going vegan. Veganism has taken over the country by complete storm. Even if you're not a vegan or a vegetarian, being mindful about the food you consume makes an enormous impact. I like to buy local, ethically sourced, fair trade products with as little packaging as possible. Our health and the health of the planet are intimately linked through food. A lot of people I talk to say, Okay, Jared, I really want to make a difference, but I just can't afford to buy organic. I can't afford to buy those expensive health-related food products. Now, if that sounds like you, let me introduce you to Thrive Market. Thrive Market is a revolutionary online marketplace on a mission to make healthy living easy and affordable for everyone. Don't believe me? Check it out for yourself. You can shop for thousands of non-GMO and natural products at 20 to 50% below traditional retail prices. Just the other day, I bought some organic coconut milk from Thrive Market for $1.99, which cost $3.79 at Safeway. I had to spend a lot of time looking at labels before and reading the fine print. Thankfully, Thrive Market does the homework for me. With a single click, you can save time and be sure you're getting the products that work for you and your family. And here's the best part. Thrive Market is giving Podship Earth listeners $60 of free organic groceries, plus free shipping and a 30-day trial. Simply go to thrivemarket.com slash podship. There are no codes. Just make sure to type in thrivemarket.com slash podship and the discount will be applied at checkout. Many of you will be making grocery runs this week, so why not give Thrive Market a try? If we're going to move this planet towards a healthy and sustainable future, we're going to have to rethink the food that we eat every day. Thrive Market is helping us take a step in the right direction. So go to thrivemarket.com slash podship and put food on the table that makes you feel good and that you can feel good about. 
Up next, Cousin David and I talk with Lisa Gauthier, who runs Matter of Trust, a grassroots organization that does more than many large national environmental nonprofits combined. Lisa is a force of nature. One of her projects helps match up things like binders that businesses no longer need with a school that has no money for binders. Lisa was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and on TV around the world because of her success in mobilizing hair salons to ship their trimmings to oil spills where the hair is used to clean up the mess. Lisa, welcome to Podship Earth. Hi, Jared. Hi, David. Hello. What was it in your life that inspired you to get involved in this field? Well, I've always known that I wanted to do something with the environment. I was very excited about this one person who, named Gerald Durrell who wrote a book called mm. My Family and Other Animals. And I fell in love with that book. A uh, and book. I went to um, go live at his zoo in Jersey in the Channel Islands when I was 17, as soon as I got out of high school. And he had a course called Breeding uh, of Endangered Animals and Zoo Management. And it was for uh, veterinarians and zoo owners and things from around the world. And I was a 17-year-old. and um, But I begged and pleaded, and they let me take the course. And I can just tell you that zoo management has been really helpful my entire life. <laughs> I came back and I had a funny English accent for about three weeks until I like <laughs> everyone's like, don't do that. That sounds silly on you. So <laughs> That's what people say to me all the time. As yes, well. I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> David and I yesterday came and visited you at the eco center that you built at 1566 Howard Street in this old industrial, um, cool, really cool building. Anyone who comes to San Francisco, um, go to matteroftrust.org and they'll have all the opening times and you can see definitely worth it didn't you had fun david right i loved it i felt like i was in like a a museum or a school it was very educational informative and i felt inspired and you just can't literally lisa he hasn't shut up about it the whole no i mean like I, i i just feel good knowing that people are doing this kind of work because sometimes i feel like i don't contribute enough what's my contribution and then i see you somebody who's sacrificing is on the front line and it it it's inspiring. Like, I'm just cool. like, I can't believe that people do this stuff. Like I sit there and it's just overwhelming, to be honest. David, I think a lot of people feel overwhelmed. And I mean, I guess, Lisa, was that part of a motivation? Why did you end up creating this eco center in San Francisco? And so we wanted to have a, a space in the middle of the city that uh, we could talk about, you know, perhaps noise pollution or, um, or smells or toxins. Uh, and if, if you have it in the middle of the city, then you have people talk about it and, and you can change it through design. I would say to the kids that come into our eco hub that it's important to concentrate on the environment that you do want. If you are composting, if you eat less meat, uh, if you're walking uh, instead of driving and you're taking care of your insides, as well as your family and your city block and your city, uh, then you start to become a beacon and that grows and more and more people uh, see that and want to go to there. And that's ultimately how everything's going to get better. And we have a website, excessaccess.org, and you can just sign up. It's all free and just make a wish list. Um, and if you have things you want to give away, you can uh, post your gifts, as many as you want. It's limitless. If you're the kind of person that likes to make sure that something goes to the right place, then you want to um, post the things that you have to give away and, and see that they get to the right person. Were there any like weird or funny things that you got requests to try and 
dispose oh, of? Yes, many, 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 many. Um, so uh, we got we were told that we have Michael Phelps's underarm hair. Um, <laughs> so uh, that was Excellent. a special surprise. Someone just phoned you up and says we we have Michael Phelps's underarm. Well, hair. we got we got an envelope with a letter inside of it that said that the Olympic team was uh, shaving all of their all of their underarm hair and that they were going to donate it to our cause. <laughs> and did that put a smile on your face? Oh, yeah. We, we get smiles every day. So you go into the, to the um, eco-industrial hub, and one of the displays all around the back is different types of hair. From There was buffalo hair. They have a salon where they cut your hair, and then they turn the hair into hair mats. Our charity has always loved to look at... Uh, matching uh, needs with surplus. And uh, somebody uh, told us about this gentleman named Phil McCrory in Alabama, uh, who was a hairstylist and shampooing a really oily head of hair while the TV in his salon was playing the news of the Exxon Valdez uh, in Alaska. And that big oil spill had otters that were collecting oil in their fur and the water around them was a little bit cleaner. And it just clicked for him that you shampoo because hair collects oil. And he was cutting about two pounds of hair a day. And there are 370,000 hair salons in the U.S., about 370,000 370, 370, hair salons in the U.S. Yeah, That's a there, big number. And there's about 200,000 pet groomers. Um, there's several thousand uh, fleece farmers. So uh, that's a lot of fiber. And it's like Forrest Gump-esque moment, right? How did you know that story? He was in, on Dateline and he was in a lot of press. And that's how um, people started sending it to me. Then uh, we had a wish list from a group in uh, on our Excess Access program uh, from a group in uh, the Galapagos Islands. And there was an oil spill there. And they were, we were talking to them and they were complaining that there were all these... Um, chemicals that were being used uh, in these fragile ecosystems. And I was like, why aren't you using the hair mats? And they're like, what are hair mats? And it was the first time that, duh, that I sort of realized that there are a lot of great ideas out there that just never get picked up. And so I called every hairstylist in Huntsville, Alabama, and I found Phil. And um, and he's like, I've got a garage full of hair. I've never been able to make a business out of this. And I was like, I'd love it if our charity could partner with you. And so that was in 19, late 1999. And by the year 2000, we started doing this. And what, what does doing this mean? So doing this means that we have a database of many, many, many hairstylists uh, and pet groomers and farmers uh, that are ready at a moment's notice to send out fibers to an emergency oil spill. Okay, so the three three hundred and seventy thousand hair salons, and then more pet groomers and farmers, right? So during the 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 Costco Busan oil spill in yes. San Francisco, I get this call from Lisa. Do you think that we can have surfers tow hair mats <laughs> in the water? She didn't wait for anyone to say we should do this. She sent the surfers out. So then we drove to the beach, and at the beach we saw this group of uh, from Surfrider and and Kill the Spill. They had a phone tree that just brought all these surfers out, and they were all looking at the oil washing up on the beach. And I said, you know, look, I have a lot of hair mats <laughs> if you guys want them. And they were like, yeah, bring them out. So that day we had eighty um, people on the beach. The next day we had two hundred and fifty. The next day we had over 500, 1,600 people show up that wanted to get trained on doing hair mats. And it was, I mean, it's not 
training. It's just like, you know, just put down the hair and it soaks up the oil. It was bunker fuel, so it was kind of thick. Um, and so it kind of came up in uh, in sort of silver dollar sized droplets uh, because the water was relatively cold. And, and so it was easy for people to just kind of pat them all up uh, in the mats. There's an enormous thirst and appetite when the shit hits the fan with an oil spill for people to help. Yes. And government agencies are shit, really shit at getting anyone mobilized quickly and really tapping into that talent. So you energize the hair salons, yes. right? So they feel part of the solution. Yes. Then you energize all these volunteers and you're actually helping do something demonstrable and cleaning it up. So watching you... Um, it's just, it's, it was inspiring to be, I mean, that, that well, first Costco Busan spill, it was like, holy shit. That it's really very empowering and everybody knows that you're growing this renewable resource on top of your head. The answer to oil spills is literally growing in front of your eyes. So I love that. I have a question. How did you get from the Galapagos Islands to testing your first sample to knowing that this is actually a viable solution? And how did you know that, that it like worked? It's immediate. You literally can stick a ponytail into salad dressing or water oil or whatever you want that's, you know, dark and oily and, and you lift it up and it's gone, you know, within seconds. Um, because what's happening this is, is cra- it's just crazy. Everybody, uh, you know, wants to jump in. And we realized early on that we needed to have a system because it's a free um service to have everybody send in the hair, but we got three quarters of a million pounds in four days at one point. And, and we've gotten hair from every zip code in North America and 30 other countries. They pay to for the postage to send it in. So that's and do you hear stories about those people? Oh, all the time. So all the ponytails that come in, um, so many of them come with a little letter. They're super heartwarming and, and delightful and um, some of them are heart wrenching. Um, Lots of times people that are uh, on chemo will shave their whole mm. head at some point. And so mm. we get those stories. Mm. You're attached to your hair. So it's a it's a very uh, personal touch. And if anyone out there that has a man bun, this could be your moment. People <laughs> have been talking about your man bun. Maybe you don't know it, but I would suggest now's a great time. Cut it off. It was maybe cool in 2015, 2016. But now... You could be helping sure, Lisa. If it is ever. Okay. Cool. Good point, Lisa. <laughs> no, I just cut mine off about five months ago. Really? Looks good. Yeah. <laughs> you look you look alive and well now. Okay, so Lisa, if people were really interested um, in a non-emergency setting in making their hair count, um, what what should they do? Do you want them to send it to you or do you want them to hold on to it? Is there are there like hair banks? What what should they do with their hair? So matteroftrust.org has on its homepage a section about donating hair, fur, and fleece. When there's uh, not a large uh, oil spill uh, that needs urgent assistance, uh, we uh, make hair mats that go into storm drains uh, from municipalities, and um, they soak up the runoff um, from motor oil drips and things like that that are on the street um, when rain hits it and goes into these storm drains It often will go out uh, into bays, and the hair catches all of that. How many cities have that storm drain hair mat program? So right now they're all in Texas. I think we have five of them in Texas. California always thinks it's like the leader of everything. Texas is leading in hair mats. Absolutely. Go nice. Kendership. Yeah, there's a lot of really great Is there people. one particular town that we should give a shout out to? Who did it first? Garland, Texas did it first. Garland, Texas. But, yeah. We want to give props to Garland, Texas. Yes. Anyone <laughs> listening from Garland, yes. we love you. Thank you for doing that. Okay, so Galapagos came, then Costco, Busan, and then the mother of all frigging oil spills happened with BP Deepwater Horizon. 
I remember passing Lisa's house and the boxes <laughs> um, went up to the second story. Oh, it, it, there were so many boxes of hair from around the world. Already, this oil spill is the worst environmental disaster America has ever faced. We're sorry for the massive disruption it's caused to their lives. And, you know, we're, there's no one who wants this thing over more than I do. You know, I'd like my life back. Tell us what you did. How did you mobilize? What did you do during Deepwater Horizon? All the salons from all over the South were calling me, and uh, they wanted to set up what they called boombecues. Um, they were like barbecues, but on the beach. And they would, uh, so it turns out Haynes uh, Nylons is actually out of Alabama. And um, they donated... Uh, I think a couple hundred thousand pairs. And then- um, Pairs of what, sorry? Pairs of nylons. Okay. And you can stuff hair into nylons and kind of create like a a boom or you can start sandbagging beaches. Alabama, uh, Mississippi, um, Louisiana and Florida have these just spectacularly beautiful white beaches that were getting covered in in oil. Hooters Restaurant called us and they donated all those uh, uh, waitresses wear these very special nylons and they cut off 250,000 pairs, just cut off all the crotches and just sent us all the legs and we stuffed all those nylons with hair. Uh, And then... um, So crotchless... (laughs) Nylons from Hooters got stuffed with hair. You heard it here first on Pod Chipper. <laughs> they were awesome. They were just so amazing. Um, and um, you went out there. I remember there was like yes. warehouses. Like talk about the logistics because it was frigging amazing. Warehouses donated to us um, in all those different states right on the water. So everything went through us, um, through Excess Access, and we were sending out the addresses so we make sure that no house would get over, warehouse would get overwhelmed and the other ones wouldn't. And then it was buffalo fleecing season again. And there was a huge alpaca convention, all of that fleecing came to us literally tens and tens of millions of gallons of spill that they get paid for to pay themselves to clean it up it and you're there with volunteers doing the lord's work and, <laughs> well, and and you get no support at all they were getting so many questions at every press conference about hair and of course they knew nothing about hair they didn't understand where this was coming from when you went to bp.com just their plain old homepage, in huge type they had BP will not use hair. <laughs> that was the top of their website. We were like, whoa. Um, but as it turned out, um, at the same time, their uh, boom acquisition uh, lead inside BP was talking to us. She'd heard about us through Rachel Meadow because we were getting a lot of press at that time. I had my cell phone number on the home on my homepage and they were like Fort Knox. So of course, all the press was coming to us because on top of that, every person in the media that what was going to their hairstylist at that point was hearing about it. They were like the captive audience of their hairstylist who were saying, your oh, hair yeah. gets good. Go yeah. So they, there was just this huge loop um, of us getting media and BP getting ticked off. And, and so their um, boom acquisition lady was just fabulous. And she's like, we just, we need all the fiber. So open the floodgates, like let in the Buffalo fleece, let in everything. She said, we'll repackage it. We're not going to use your nylons. That's ridiculous. <laughs> but, but we'll take the fiber. I was actually on the phone with NPR and I, my phone beeped and it was uh, the head of public relations for BP. And I was like, I'm on the other line with with uh, P- NPR. Can, can I conference you in? And he's like, if you conference this call, I will hang up on you. He was screaming at the top of his lungs and became very hysterical on the phone. And the end result of it was he offered me $10,000 to go away. 
And I was like, <laughs> first of all, I don't know whether to be insulted that it's so little or <laughs> to be insulted that you would even offer that because obviously I'm not going to take $10,000. I'm nervous about, yeah. about how much fiber I have coming in now because you guys have told us to bring it all in. Yes, but here's the thing. Like, how long were you there? Like, it's crazy to me that you are... You fly from San Francisco, you bring all the resources, you're mobilizing all these like volunteers and these people have billions of dollars <laughs> and you're doing this by yourself with all the other volunteers. Like, it's crazy to me. It really bothers me though. This is serious. Well, so what oh happened God. was- I mean, the whole thing, David, I mean, didn't you remember? Deep I don't, like, you guys were there. Like, I have no idea. Like, it I read this from the deal. newspaper and I'm deal. like glad, like, I'm glad that you're on the case. I know he's been on the case for a long time. I'm just like a normal person who just reads a newspaper and is like, I'm very upset. Bro. So the guy offers you 10 grand. What do you do? <laughs> so we say no. 11. <laughs> no. I was like. <laughs> Jesus. I, I was actually very polite. He was so dead. I said, you know, well, I think I'm going to have to ask my board about that. And I'll talk to you later because I just didn't know what to do with him. He was so upset. But but one of the things that had happened was at first he came on and he was like, you know, I can't believe you're lying to the press about working with BP. And I said, well, I, I'm not lying. I'm, I'm working, you know, with this person. Her name was Lisa, too. I said her name and I said, and her phone number looks an awful lot like yours. These are the last four numbers. And I could hear his chair creak back as he was talking to somebody else. And that's when all of a sudden the conversation changed. She's like, well, you, you can't do this. You know, we're, we we have a fund that's going to our own cleanup efforts and we can't be dealing with a recycling, you know, hair project at this time. And and how about if we just pay you this much to help you for, you know, your trouble so far or whatever. <laughs> that was an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, okay, switching gears a second. I want to talk to you about your view that government is changing the weather through chemtrails. My stance is that I would like to have the discussion. I I never dismiss anything without looking at it, anything. And so my thing is like, why can't we look at this? If there's people that, that would like to know more information about dimming skies or what chemicals might be coming out the back of an airplane or if it's water vapor or... Uh, ever dismiss when a large population uh, wants to bring up their concerns. and The chemtrail um, folks, they definitely believe there is sufficient evidence to say it is happening. And then, you know, when I was at EPA and uh, other federal agencies, they feel like they have looked into it and there isn't credible evidence that it is happening. So it seems like we're a little bit of a impasse. It'd be fun to explore. So maybe, maybe you can help us moderate that. <laughs> My goodness. Wouldn't that be great? Thank you, Lisa. You've been a beacon for me and so many people. Really appreciate you spending the time with us and look forward to doing an episode in the future on Chemtrails with you. <laughs> Thank you, guys. This was great. I'm grateful that Musa, Dana, and Lisa were able to join us today. Thank you. How cool is it to have a Podship Earth correspondent in Cape Town? If you'd like to be a Podship Earth stringer from your corner of the planet, let me know by dropping me an email at jared at podshipearth.com. All you need is a mic, a recording device, and an intrepid spirit. What I took away from the struggle being faced by Cape Town is that we need to prepare our homes and cities for a future with much less water. At home, one step we can all take is to capture rainwater. In Adelaide, an Australian city of 1.2 million people, a remarkable 45% of homes have rooftop rainwater capture tanks that are used to irrigate lawns, flush toilets, and even run washing machines. They are mandatory for all new homes. Even if it only rains one inch, a 1,000-square-foot roof captures 600 gallons of water. 
We can also reduce the amount of water we use each day, from taking shorter showers to investing in high-efficiency washing machines or dishwashers to making sure your toilets are all low-flow and that if you do have a yard, you install drip irrigation. You'll save money and be prepared for a drier future. I've posted rainwater harvesting guides and a tip to saving water on my homepage at podshipearth.com. What Lisa taught me was that each of us can make a big difference if we're involved in projects that we love. There are times that it's important to make a sacrifice, but it really helps to be genuinely excited when we get out of bed each morning. That excitement is contagious, and in Lisa's case, changed the way people help clean up oil spills. I would definitely recommend you go and see Lisa at 1566 Howard Street when you're next in San Francisco. Next week, Brenner and I will be in the back of a Sprinter truck talking with Eli and Sarah about their decision to move into vans as a way of reducing their commutes, avoiding skyrocketing rents, and gaining independence. We'll also talk with Rochelle Toulouse, a member of the Havasupai American Indian Nation, located at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, about how she sees the world. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, Cape Town correspondent Dana Smirin, editor Rob Spate, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and me, Jared Blumenfeld, have a fabulous week. <laughs>